Well, let's return to the Gospel of Luke this morning. Luke chapter 23. I just uh, want to encourage you while we're doing that. Um, even if you were not planning on staying this afternoon, I'd encourage you to do so. I'm really looking forward to it. I think we're going to have a wonderful time together. Um, we have had uh, a number of requests for uh, various Christmas songs, and some that I have uh, done in the past have been asked for, so uh, we'll be singing together, and I'll be doing a couple of things, and I think uh, we're in for a, a wonderful celebration this afternoon. We are in Luke chapter 23, and we're going to pick up with verse 26 When they led him away, they seized a man, Simon of Cyrene, coming in from the country, and placed on him the cross to carry behind Jesus. And following him was a large crowd of the people and of women who were mourning and lamenting him. But Jesus, turning to them, said, Daughters of Jerusalem, stop weeping for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren, and the wombs that never bore, and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things, when the tree is green... What will happen when it is dry? Father, we ask that uh, you would work through your word today. Your people come to you, acknowledging that this is indeed your word. It is therefore good and right, and it is profitable for us. By your spirit, Father, make it so. We ask this in the name of the Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, Luke has uh, brought us along with him, following along with Jesus on his way to the cross. And as we look at this passage together, there are a few things that I want you to see here. In verse 26, Luke tells us about Simon, who bears the cross for Jesus. It's an irony, isn't it? Jesus is about to bear the sin of the world on his shoulders, and yet here he is unable to bear the burden of the crossbeam of the very cross that he will hang upon. And so the Romans conscript a passerby. We're told of this man, Simon of Cyrene, who's coming into the city from the country. And they draft him, essentially, and force him to carry the crossbeam behind Jesus as they continue on their way to Golgotha. And Luke wants us to see in that the price that Jesus is paying, the pain 
the suffering that he is even then bearing for us in this scene. And then, of course, we have a crowd of people and women who are mourning and lamenting him, and that serves as the predicate for Jesus, even as he's on the way to the cross, so weak that he can't even carry his own crossbeam, he's going to preach. Forget the physical strength that that would take. Just consider the presence of mind to endure what he has already endured. Suffer what he is then currently suffering. And still he's thinking about these women. And what is yet to happen to them. And as he says, to their children and indeed to the entire nation. And so Luke wants us to see not only the price of Jesus' pain and suffering. He wants us to see this preaching of Jesus because the crowd there that's following him on the way out to the hill outside of the city, many of them mourning and weeping, they receive from Jesus in that moment a prophetic word. What Jesus says to them sounds like an Old Testament prophet. It's a powerful message. In this passage that we'll be looking at this morning, Luke continues to focus on what is to come, which is, of course, the cross. Although Luke hasn't specifically mentioned the cross, Luke hasn't specifically mentioned the cross in his description of Jesus' betrayal and arrest and trials. Its shadow has been over everything that has happened. As we're making our way to the cross, Luke is focusing our attention on Jesus, of course, but also on certain aspects of his person and his ministry. And the first thing he draws attention to here is the price that Jesus is already paying in his pain and suffering on our behalf. And he does it by telling us about this moment when Jesus can no longer go on. He literally can no longer carry that beam that has been placed upon his back. Now, most likely, Jesus is not dragging along, as you see in some of the movies, the entire cross. Typically, those who were condemned to crucifixion would carry the cross beam. The upright beam would already be there at the site of the crucifixion. But he can't even do that, and he collapses under the weight of that crossbeam. And the Roman soldiers look into the crowd for someone who seems strong enough to carry that instrument of death. And their eyes fall upon Simon of Cyrene. And Simon is commanded to carry Jesus' cross the rest of the way. Luke wants us to know what's happening here. He wants us to understand what Jesus is enduring, the burden that he is bearing for us. We've already seen how cruelly he's been treated. 
He's not only been mocked, but he's been beaten and scourged as well. As was the normal practice of the Romans toward anyone who was about to be crucified. He had also been mistreated by the Herodian guards. Before that, he had been up all night long, agonizing there in the garden. To the point at which his sweat could be described as great drops of blood. He had been betrayed by one of his disciples. He had been repudiated by one of his closest friends. He had been deserted by all of his so-called disciples. And he had endured all of this, knowing that the most difficult part was yet to come. He had yet to bear the sins of the world and be forsaken by his father. The Gospels emphasize not just the physical suffering that he's going through, but the spiritual burden that he is bearing as well. For he alone understands how great that weight is going to be. The Westminster Catechism says that on the cross he would feel and bear the weight of the wrath of God. And none of us can understand what that means. It's a hurt so dark that we cannot comprehend it. J. Gresham Machen's favorite hymn was, There is a green hill far away, written by a British hymnist, Cecil Francis Alexander. If you're not familiar with it, one of the stanzas of that hymn says this, We may not know, we cannot tell what pain he had to bear. Luke is doing his best to relate it to us. But it is just something that is beyond the experience of any human being. We can't know how deep the pain was, how heavy the burden was. It is beyond our comprehension. And Luke is drawing our attention to that, even in the physical weakness of Jesus as he makes his way to the cross. But, you know, even in that scene, we see something of how God has gospel purposes, even for hard providence. Because this man who is coming into Jerusalem from somewhere out in the country is a man named Simon of Cyrene. And one of the obvious questions which is raised by this episode concerning Simon of Cyrene is... Where are the disciples? Why didn't one of the disciples jump out from the crowd and take that beam upon his back? Why didn't one of the disciples take that beam and carry it to Golgotha? Well, we know why, don't we? The eleven had all fled in terror, not willing at that point in any case to share their master's fate. And so instead of that heroic scene, which we would like to have seen, Luke describes something else entirely. When they led him away, they seized a man, Simon of Cyrene, coming in from the country and placed on him the cross to carry behind Jesus. Now, you may not be familiar with the nation of Cyrene, And you can be excused for that. You don't know it, at least by that name, perhaps. But Cyrene is what 
modern-day Libya used to be called. And at the time, it had a rather significant Jewish community. There were, in fact, enough Cyrenian Jews coming to Jerusalem that Luke tells us in the book of Acts that there is actually a Cyrenian synagogue in Jerusalem. Now, we don't know anything about Simon at this point. We don't know whether he had been part of a larger group of Jesus' disciples or whether he was just at the right place at the right time. But we do know something about his later life, interestingly enough. As Mark relates this story in Mark chapter 15, verse 21, he describes this man to his readers as Simon of Cyrene, the father of Alexander and Rufus. Which is a bit strange, isn't it? It gives you some insight into the nature of the early church and the nature of the Gospels as they were first written. Mark isn't writing his Gospel with the world in mind. He's not writing his Gospel thinking about people in Siberia reading it, or Hong Kong, or Argentina, or the Ivory Coast. He was writing to a relatively small community of believers still contained within the Roman Empire and really still contained within Greece, Italy, and Asia Minor, which is present-day Turkey. It was such a small community that Mark could put something like that in his gospel. He can write, oh, and by the way, this Simon of Cyrene, he was the father of Alexander and Rufus. Because he's not writing to a nameless, faceless blob of humanity. He's writing to people that he knew and people who knew him. And in his mind, he can see their faces and he could hear their voices. And it's in that context that he could write that this Simon of Cyrene is the father of Alexander and Rufus. Because with the exception, perhaps, of new believers, he expected everyone to know who Alexander and Rufus were. Didn't even need a last name. But there's more to this. In Romans chapter 16, verse 13... Rufus is mentioned again. There at the end of Romans, Paul sends greetings to both Rufus and Rufus's mother, whom Paul describes as his mother, meaning Rufus, and mine. Meaning perhaps that Rufus's mother had been some, somewhat of a spiritual mother to him, Perhaps she had ministered to Paul in some significant way, and so he sends greetings to Rufus, the son of Simon of Cyrene, the man who had carried Jesus' cross. And what we learn, then, is that even in this hard providence, God is using this providence for gospel purposes in the life of Simon of Cyrene. In the life of Simon's family. Simon's sons come to faith in Christ. Perhaps it was hearing what we are about to hear Jesus say, which leads Simon to faith in Christ. 
Perhaps seeing the transformation which takes place in Simon's life, his wife comes to faith in Christ. And then some time later in God's providence, Simon's wife has the opportunity to minister to the Apostle Paul in such a significant way that he refers to her as his mother. And perhaps being raised in such a home and listening to the stories and teaching of Paul and perhaps other apostles as well, Simon's children, Alexander and Rufus, not only come to faith in Christ, but eventually become such prominent servants in the early church that Mark can assume that almost everyone in the churches to whom he writes is going to know who they are. God uses hard providence for gospel purposes. And that needs to be written on a banner over us. When a loved one dies, when you or a loved one becomes seriously ill, when jobs are lost, when children stray, when war breaks out, when tragedy strikes, we must learn to ask, what is God doing for the gospel? Usually, we only get as far as asking, God, what are you doing in my life? Why are you bringing this hardship to me? We need to go further than that. We need to ask what God is going to do for the gospel through the hardship which comes into my life. What is God doing to glorify his name? What is God doing to lift up the Lord Jesus Christ? Here in the midst of the darkest providence that the world has ever known, in the midst of the greatest sin and injustice ever perpetrated, God is working out gospel purposes in the life of some guy named Simon. But of course, as always, the focal point of Luke's narrative is Jesus. Luke's desire is to draw our attention to the price that Jesus is bearing, and that's not just a physical price, but a spiritual one as well. And he doesn't want us to lose sight of that. And so Luke draws our attention back to Jesus, and he does so by drawing our attention to his preaching We're told that following him as he's making his way to Golgotha is a large crowd of people and of women who were mourning and lamenting him. So as Jesus is going, there is this crowd. And among the crowd are women and the women are described as mourning and lamenting. Now, By the way, this is another one of those testimonies, to me at least, that what Luke is saying in this story is true. Because first of all, Luke is the only one of the gospel writers that tells us about this. And by the time that Luke's gospel was written and circulated, there was already significant conflict between Jews and messianic followers of Jesus and the temptation would have been to paint everyone in Jerusalem as being unsympathetic to Jesus. But that's not what Luke does. Here we find an entire multitude 
sympathetic with him as he's being taken to the cross. Here are women who are mourning and lamenting. Now, this is not uncommon. Very often, women would follow those who were being crucified, and they would actually take sponges full of whatever kind of natural anesthetic they had to deaden the pain while they were on the cross. Of course, we know this was happening when Jesus was on the cross, and he refused it. There's apparently a multitude of women following Jesus doing this very thing. But I want you to note something very important here. These are not just professional mourners. Those existed too. And they're there, for instance, at the tomb of Lazarus. But that's not what we have here. They were more even than just good women taking pity on those who are suffering. Luke doesn't say that they were mourning and lamenting, period. Luke says they were mourning and lamenting him. In other words, they were not there for just another victim of Roman oppression. They were there for Jesus in particular. And Jesus pauses then to say to them in verse 28, Daughters of Jerusalem, stop weeping for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. Now, before we go any further, I want you to remember something we just were talking about regarding Simon of Cyrene. We were talking about the providence of God bringing about gospel purposes. And here, in regard to these women, we're seeing another side of that coin. Here are these women, and they're mourning and lamenting over Jesus. They are doing a wonderful thing. They are ministering to the Son of God in the midst of his suffering. They are weeping with one who weeps. They are, by every indication, good and godly women who love Jesus. And yet Jesus says to them, Stop weeping for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, Cover us. Though they are good and godly women, they are given no guarantee that because of that, their lives will be easy and prosperous. Just the opposite, in fact. They are told that in the providence of God, great hardship is coming. In the providence of God, the judgment coming upon that generation will affect even those who would have, if they could, spared Jesus' life. The providence of God can bring about gospel purposes, but it is no guarantee that God's people will escape the suffering of this fallen world. Within 40 years of Jesus speaking these words, the Romans would sack Jerusalem. And he's warning the inhabitants of Jerusalem at that very moment 
There is a vicious assault coming upon you, the likes of which you cannot even comprehend, and it is going to be God's judgment against you because you have rejected him and you have rejected the Messiah whom he has sent. That day is coming. It has been decreed, so don't weep for me. Weep for yourselves and for your children. And we hear that and we want to say that doesn't sound like a gospel message. That doesn't sound like a message of grace, but I assure you, it is a message of grace because it's a message of repentance. It sounds like Jonah's message, doesn't it? You remember when Jonah was sent to Nineveh, yet 40 days and Nineveh will be destroyed. That was a gospel message. That was a message of grace. Why? Because Jonah was holding up the certain judgment of God against sin. And as he did that, what was also being communicated under the surface is that if they would repent and flee to God, they would be spared. And of course, that's exactly what happened And Jesus is doing the same in this passage. He's using these women as an opportunity to call the crowds to repentance. It's amazing, isn't it? Jesus is on his way to die, so weak that he can't even carry the crossbeam of his cross. And he's thinking of others. And he's preaching the gospel to the very end. That is Jesus. Then there's this strange proverb at the end. Verse 31. For if they do these things when the tree is green, what will happen when it is dry? And you could be forgiven for asking, what is he talking about? What do you mean by this? Well, it's clearly connected with the judgment Jesus has just been describing. We can get at least that far. Jesus is telling them a proverb, and the proverb is designed to remind them of the awful, impending, deserved reality of the judgment. I think what Jesus is saying is this. Look at what the enemies of my father are doing Now, when I'm here, living, breathing, walking among you, look at what they're doing when the tree is green. Don't think you're going to escape judgment when I'm gone, when the tree is dry. They're judging me now, but after they've done that, there is another greater divine judgment which is yet to come. In his epistle, the Apostle James refers to God as the one who is able to save and to destroy. And Jesus is saying there is a judgment coming and what I'm going to experience on the cross is proof that there is another judgment coming. My enemies are judging me now while the tree is green, but a divine judgment is going to come. When the tree is dry, there are those who will deny that judgment is coming. There always have been. 
Peter writes of them in his second epistle when he says, Mockers will come with their mocking. But by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and the destruction of ungodly men. If you don't think that judgment is coming, you need to take that up with Jesus, because he says it is. But what judgment is he speaking about? Is he speaking about what happened back in the first century, A.D. 70, when Rome came down and utterly destroyed Jerusalem? Or is he speaking about the judgment that Peter is referring to? The ultimate final judgment, which will take place at his return. And I think the answer is yes. His primary reference is clearly to A.D. 70. He's talking about what's going to happen to those particular women and their children. At that particular place, the days are coming. It is that generation which has rejected its Messiah which will experience this coming judgment. And indeed, that's exactly what happened one generation later. Jesus had already predicted this. And after his resurrection and ascension, the apostles would say the same thing. There is judgment coming upon that generation because they had rejected the Messiah. But there's something here which also points to the final judgment as well. I wonder if verse 30 sounds familiar to you. They will begin to say to the mountains, fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. It's an interesting verse. Jesus is putting together two different quotations from the Old Testament. One from Hosea, one from Isaiah. So Jesus is looking backwards taking quotations from the Old Testament and applying them to that present generation. But he's also looking forward, isn't he? Because later on, after the destruction of Jerusalem, the Apostle John is going to make reference to the same thing. And in Revelation chapter 6, verse 16, as he's describing the final judgment, John writes this, that they said to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us. And hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. And what does Jesus say here in verse 30? They will begin to say to the mountains, fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. And so we're seeing what we so often see in regard to prophetic scripture. There is a double fulfillment here. Jesus is speaking initially to that fulfillment to come in A.D. 70, But there is also an echo in that judgment of the ultimate judgment to come when Jesus returns. To these women, he says, don't think that you're going to escape from the physical judgment to come. You're going to have to escape from the judgment in some other way. And the only way to escape from the ultimate judgment is in me. I'm going to the cross to be destroyed by judgment. And the only way that you will be spared from final destruction is through me. The only refuge to be found from that ultimate judgment is in me. Sometimes we think that that just couldn't be. 
Surely there's not going to be a judgment. Surely there's not going to be a day of reckoning. And Jesus is speaking to that doubt right here. And he's saying, oh yes, there is. And my going to the cross is proof of it. Do you think the Father would have spared anyone judgment if he does not spare his son? If God's going to spare someone, it's going to be me. But I'm on my way to face it right now. He's saying these things because he wants us to flee. To flee from the wrath and the destruction that we deserve. We may not escape tragedy and hardship in this life. But we can escape the judgment which is to come. And we do that by trusting in him. So that when that day comes, when Jesus returns, and the world is crying out for the rocks and the hills to fall upon them, we might escape. Escape that judgment which is to come upon the whole earth. Father, this this is the reason you sent your son into the world. This is why, Father, Jesus went to the cross so that we might escape. Oh, Father, may it be so. May your spirit take your gospel and make it effective. If need be, Father, through hard providence to save your people. In Jesus' name, amen.